series we've made it through friends visiting over the weekend we've made it yeah being back on the bar scene you know supporting bars and paying 14 dollars for cocktails um, so i'm back to not supporting bars now so that's <laughs> we got a, we got a fun one today but we we do have obviously house cleaning that we we need to do it for every episode Friend of the show, Chloe Zhao. She has made uh, The Eternals, which is going to be the movie that makes Marvel legitimate in the eyes of overly masculine filmmaker Martin Scorsese. What do you think? I mean, honestly, here's the deal. Uh, the stills, right, that we've seen, the uh, we can pretty confidently now say that... Uh, Chloe really is the only filmmaker that anyone should talk about in the history of film. That's what I would, that's where I'm at. I'm ready to see Texas cowpoke Terrence Malick finally take a hike. I don't, I don't care what people are saying online. Marvel is back. Yep. Let's see what else we got. We got Wanda group selling. No, not the everyone, all you noise tape heads, not, not the musical moniker, uh, <laughs> Wanda Group. Um, the actual Chinese conglomerate Wanda Group is selling all of its AMC stock. So movie theaters are back. Yeah. Well, like uh, jumping off of that, uh, next episode, hopefully, we'll finally have uh, John Cena on because I don't know if you saw that news. Big stuff. But, you know, as he is fluent in Mandarin, um, and so are we. We're going to have him on and do an episode only in Mandarin about the art of the apology video. So just make cock blockers too. shut up. Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty embarrassing. <laughs> it's just like the, the the suggestion with that is and like, yes, you know, it's good to care about stuff and know when things are countries and when they're not. Uh, but, you know, if there's a person alive who has not made a mistake in regards to geography of the world or, you know, accidentally calling something that is a city, a country or vice versa, you know, I'd like I'd like to meet him. And, uh, you know, the seriousness of that video is pretty special. So anyway, you know, uh, shout yeah. out to our next president, John Cena. Let's see what else. I think there's tr- some, some trailers. Other than the Chloe's um, mega pick, um, I think we have. There's a new Edgar Wright movie coming out that I. Oh yeah, I didn't watch the trailer. I could not care about. This one looks actually like something I might sit through. Yeah, I mean, I, I am. I will say I like everything except for Baby Driver. I do. Like, there's some, you know, I'm like closer to soft neutral <laughs> on some of them rather than liking or loving. But you know. Um, I have a good time most of the time, but Baby Driver makes me want to, um, you know, that movie makes me want to die. But, you know, hopefully this one doesn't. And he's got that new Sparks doc, too. Oh, yeah, that's right. He did do a doc on Sparks. It just I just want to see them do the score for the Leo Shkarax movie. I don't, oh, I don't so need this good. guy telling me how goofy they were, you know. <laughs> yep. like, those bros, they're goofy. I don't. I don't care. Um, I yeah. I guess I probably will see that. Oh, we had a Paul Verhoeven trailer too. Yeah, horny nuns. Yep. You know, as we'll talk about on this episode, definitely a descendant of Terrence Fisher. 
in the uh, in the love of sex and violence. Absolutely. Oh, he also made news because he's got a new director's cut of uh, Basic Instinct coming out, and Sharon Stone is not happy about it. Oh, I didn't know this. Because apparently it restores a second of her crotch shot or something like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's fair. That, you know, I, I definitely understand being yeah. <laughs> whatever. You know. I don't want people seeing my hole, you know, and I get it. Well, not, you know, they're paid subscribers, obviously, but, you know, not like a movie going public needs no, only to see a hole. But I don't know. Again, it's just like, whatever. It would be funny if it were like an elaborate ruse that she put on that she was upset with it, like in uh, the Bob Dylan documentary, oh. the Rolling Thunder Review. The greatest trolling movie ever created. That movie makes me giggle nonstop. That shit is so funny. It's really good. Speaking of something that could be seen as problematic, uh, we'll get into this on a new, uh, different episode longer. But I, as you know, I've just been on this big, like late Blake Edwards kick. 1989 feature Skin Deep. Yes. 100% the greatest credits opening sequence. Oh, yeah. It's about a womanizing, uh, you know, misogynist alcoholic who is played by John Ritter. And he, it's amazing that anything could bring humanity to such a description. But, um, yeah, we don't need to go deep into it. I just, I have not been able to get it out of my mind. I was like shopping for an XL t shirt that I found online that was $40 that was from the movie with a reference to the glow in the dark scene, which that's, that's I would awesome. never ruin on this show. Awesome. Oh, you gotta get that shirt. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's got a stain on it, but whatever. It's even better. Yeah. Um, well, I guess we should put a cap on that and let's, uh, do you want, do you want to bring our guest on? Yep. Let's do it. Now that we've covered the news for the day, we, uh, can talk to, Someone who is going to be way more interesting than listening to us talk about Wanda Group selling all of its AMC stock. Um, <laughs> we are talking with David Gregory. In many ways, you recall the godfather of the boutique label. You know, Severin, Blue Underground. If you listen to this, you know those and you always check the updates. So it is with great pleasure to be able to have you on and talk to us about Terrence Fisher. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know that I'm the godfather of the uh, <laughs> label, but, uh, but you know, I'll take it. <laughs> what they're saying. <laughs> and for, uh, for some of our listeners that might not know, um, David Gregory doesn't just do um, home video releases, also a producer and a director, um, all sorts of films, has been yes. doing this for a long time, fiction, documentary, everything in between, um, you know, so look him up, dig into everything if you have not done that. Um, but yeah, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. And I thought uh, to get stuff started, I would love to just kind of hear, I was reading through some of your uh, history and um, I saw that on your on your site, you list that you and one of the other founders of Severin, uh, Carl Deft, met when you were very young. And I was kind of curious, was there a movie that brought you guys together? There was. And it was a Hammer movie, but it wasn't to Terrence Fisher. It was Kiss of the Vampire. Oh. Uh, basically, it played on the BBC, I think, around 1980 mm-hmm. and uh, or maybe 1981. And we were in uh, school together. Um 
uh, eight or nine years old and uh, I yelled out in class, did anybody watch Kiss of the Vampire last night? And he was the person who answered. And so at that point we became friends and that was sort of the dawn of the video era. We, we were two people whose parents were kind of early adopters of a VCR. So, um, uh, so we would uh, uh, pool our resources to try and get every horror movie possible uh, to watch uh, without our parents knowing about it. Or the one more lenient parent, in his case, uh, his mum, and in my case, my dad, uh, to actually rent the films for us. And so we had quite a, a, a thorough horror education uh, in our youth. You always need those those parents of the other friends to get this. Go. Well, funnily of- enough, Carl's mum Carl's uh, didn't mind him watching... Uh, horror movies or, or anything, but she had two titles that she wouldn't let him watch, and they were The Exorcist and Life of Brian. And I don't know, she's not a particularly religious lady, so I've, I've no idea why those two were the ones that she singled out, maybe because she just read about them in the tabloids, but they were the two that he was not allowed to watch. Otherwise, it was open season. Amazing. <laughs> um, and so you guys, uh, so you started Exploited together. We did. Uh, what, so, what was that? What was the timeline? That was in the '90s. So that was mid '90s. So that was quite some time after after we'd both been to uh, college, uh, and I went back to England, and we'd figure I'd actually been working at a at a small video distributor as my summer job when I was in high school, and so I got kind of the lay of the land with distribution and rights and stuff like that, and so uh, we decided to pool our resources and and buy the rights to well, actually initially it was to the Texas. Chainsaw Massacre, but we didn't get it because it was banned at the time and the censor said that they would not pass it. And then a couple of years later, that censor stepped down and it was legal. Uh, all of a sudden, the next censor came in and said it was fine, which of course it was. But yeah. by that point, somebody else had picked up the rights, so we missed it. But um, but we did pick up Deranged and Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things and Vigilante and uh, film Hated Gigi Allen, The Merge Junkies, stuff like that. So on the Exploited label, we released, I think, 12 or 13 VHS tapes. But it was a bit of a nightmare because it was in England and all the films. And we were still we were trying to make them the best presentation of these movies possible and this was just before dvd became big in england so uh so we were still doing it on vhs but we did start to put extras on the vhs so we started to put interviews with the filmmakers at the end of the film uh uh, uh, so that was something that 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 i wanted to do right from the start was to actually start putting interviews on and it was because of the texas chainsaw massacre connection that i ended up uh kind of in 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 uh in a huff, not getting that movie that I went out and made Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Shocking Truth, uh, as revenge. And, uh, <laughs> and then basically that became kind of my first feature documentary. I went to Texas with a friend and a, camco- and a cheap camcorder from another friend. And, uh, and we made that documentary. And it's because of that that William Lustig uh, and I became friends. Uh, we'd already licensed Maniac and Vigilante from him, but Maniac was banned, so we never released that on Exploited. Um, but he hired me to do the Wicker Man extras for Anchor Bay. He was producing for Anchor Bay at the time. And because of that, I came out to LA to do the post on that. Bill was very happy with what I'd done with the Wicker Man interviews. And so then I just became kind of his guy for doing extras for the Anchor Bay years. And that then developed into Blue Underground. And Blue Underground was the name of mine and Carl's company in the UK. But because it was me and Bill doing 
executive producing the featurettes. He formed Blue Underground US in order to produce featurettes for Anchor Bay. And so it looked like it was all one company. Mm -hmm. And then when he split from Anchor Bay, I went with him and he started Blue Underground as, as a label. And I was with him for the first five or six years before me, Carl and John Cregan, who was working with me at Blue Underground, started Severin. Wow. Incredible. Well, you know, hey, thank you both <laughs> for the endless work from day one. Uh, you know, I mean, in, in high school, lightly, yeah, yeah, there was nothing there was nothing more exciting than because I, you know, I lived in a tiny town in southern Illinois, no video stores, no theater. But anytime we traveled anywhere, I would just dig through movies, hoping to find anything Blue Underground because I just knew <laughs> that was the first label I knew of that I was like, if they put it out, I have to watch it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yep. no, I mean, that that was the thing. Bill was extremely, and still is, actually. He's still extremely dedicated to putting out the best possible version of so many of these movies. But with the backing of Anchor Bay, he was able to just go really far and wide with what he wanted to get with stuff that just, it's amazing to think that, you know, uh, an uncut version of Tenebrae had not been available in the US prior to the Anchor Bay DVD. And so he was able to do that and Don't Torture a Duckling and, you know, all, all this stuff. Uh, you know, uh, Spanish movies, Italian movies, a lot, mainly European horror, but also the Hammers as well, which he which he picked up. Uh, the ones that were now owned by Studio Canal, things like Dracula, Prince of Darkness, The Reptile, Plague of the Zombies. I think there was, uh, I don't know, there must have been more than twenty of them that that he picked up and put through Anchor Bay. Uh, but yeah, he he really went for it uh, as far as wanting to do the extras as well and make the extras quality, which obviously I appreciated because it gave me this uh, this freedom to sort of just cast the net wide for who we can get, you know, who's still alive to talk about these movies. Uh, you know, getting commentaries with Jimmy Sangster for Horror of Frankenstein and Fear in the Night and stuff like that, which now, you know, if we hadn't have done that, that wouldn't exist, you know? Yeah. So it's, so it was, it was thanks to Bill for really wanting to kind of go the whole way with the, with the extras on these films, as well as the restorations of them. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. This is a very defining thing of the Blu-ray now. And, this is also the guy who's saying that he's not the godfather of this, but as you were listening. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's it. It was kind of Bill who did that before me, but yeah, it's funny, right. I'm, I'm, actually going to, I'm actually going to London next month to interview a guy who started one of the first specialist labels that I remember, in the boutique labels that I remember in the UK, which was called Mondo Movies, run by a guy who ran the uh, Psychotronic store in London, Val Croce. And so he released uh, three Ray Dennis Steckler movies. He released Plan 9 from Outer Space, Orgy of the Dead, stuff like that. And so, and and that was, that was really what opened my mind to the fact that you can, you know, do a specialist label based on your own interests, you know, <laughs> which I guess I hadn't really considered before. Yeah. And <laughs> it, it, it's what makes, it's like, makes your releases like compulsory buying because like, even though I was like, well, I, I'd seen, so the Umberto Lindsay, Carol Baker set, I remember Will and I were talking about this. I'm like, yeah, I've seen those movies. I'm like, well, you know, I, I could see them again for, yeah, all right, I'll see them again. Very much is just as important as Mario Bava was for the Giallo there. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely right there behind us. So, yeah, no, um, I, it's one I'm, I'm extremely pleased with. It's funny when, when we embarked upon it, uh, I, 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 did not could not did not differentiate between the two versions of paranoia you know and i was like wait a second this one's got 
Gene Sorrell. This one's uh, so and and then I was like, wait a minute, there are two films called Paranoia. That's right. And then it's like, so there are four Carol Baker, Umberto Lenzi, Gialli. We have to get them all, and we have to package them together. And they're all from four different licensors. So it took a bit of wrangling in order to be able to get them to put them in the box together. But I think. Packaging them, packaging them together and having all the appreciations and the old Lindsay interviews on there and stuff like that really kind of made it uh, made it the set that it is, you know? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Crucial stuff. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, reason for the season, you know, um, we were, me and John were talking about, uh, as we spend most of our time talking about upcoming releases we're excited about. And uh, of course, the Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee that you guys announced a while back. Um, yep. uh, that came up and we got really excited and we immediately just tumbled into talking about Terrence Fisher and just how incredible and underappreciated still, I think, uh, in so many ways, um, still is. And, you know, immediately popped to my mind. I was like, oh, shit, we got to get, you know, got to see if we can get David Gregory to come on. We'll talk through all this stuff. So we'll, we'll get to the box set and that release uh, at the end. But um, now we really want to dive into uh, just a celebration of Terrence Fisher. Um, yeah. I tried to fill in as many gaps as I could that I still had. And so that was mostly, the, it was the early stuff, of course. Um, and uh, I think the earliest delight I had was um, with his uh, first film, A Song for Tomorrow, which, you know, the movie didn't like bowl me over or anything, but briefly Christopher Lee, very young, shows up and it was amazing to see him uh, clearly just like eager to be a part of it <laughs> um, in this great little role. Um, and, you know, Tall so that, ass motherfucker just oh, yeah. on yeah. <laughs> dominating the screen. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, but yeah, and so I kept plowing through things. Um, and the one that really stuck with me uh, was one he did with Noel Coward called The Astonished Heart. I'd never even heard of this one. Didn't know anything about it. Um, but of course, when I saw that it was him and Noel Coward, I got excited, watched the movie, and I thought it was absolutely incredible. But there's a line in it that I think uh, is a good, you know, jumping off point here to talk about Fisher. Um, it was a through line that I hadn't thought about in his career prior to this. And Noel Coward's character, Christian Faber in the movie, says uh, he's, a, he's a shrink. And someone's basically asking him uh, if it's difficult hearing all these, you know, horrific stories from people and their darkest secrets and all of that. And he very simply just says, the world I deal with is full of cruel stories. And to me, that that's kind of where I landed, you know, as for like a, a, a loose banner over Terrence Fisher's entire career. Um, this guy is just really fascinated with uh, sometimes good people getting into, you know, rough spots and how they react and sometimes uh, really rough people doing rough stuff, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and so, yeah, I think that's a, I think it's a good way uh, to think about it and kind of dig into um, his obsessions with uh, how people deal with just the random, you know, the random cruelty that can sometimes exist in the universe. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I think we're going to, we're kind of just going to jump to the, uh, when things really took off for, uh, for Fisher. So he hopped around at Gainsborough and Highbury Productions and Eros Films and all of that. Um, and then oh, in 19, 1951, he did his first movie with Hammer, which is called Man Bait, which man, I really loved. That was a, that was another great one of, uh, people who are not bad people, but 
kind of without realizing really get themselves into quite a web <laughs> of darkness that just keeps descending. Um, and so that, yeah, his, uh, the way he's fascinated with uh, cruelty and the way he brings sexuality into horror that he of course would a lot more later is really already present in man bait um, because the sexuality is really overt and a huge part of the story. Um, and so it was definitely a, I definitely really noticed uh, his obsessions already forming at this point. But yeah, well, uh, let's just <clears throat> fast forward to 1957. So he's back at Hammer. He's been hopping around other studios again. Uh, but 1957 comes The Curse of Frankenstein. And, you know, so let's just all go in. When did you when did you see that one? You know, what did you think? I mean, I, I was probably I would definitely have been on the BBC. I'm trying to think when into my Frankenstein education it came because I'd obviously already seen the pictures and in all the books I had and stuff. And it wasn't until a few years later that I actually saw the film. Um, but the, it's still actually my, what, um, I have two favorites uh, of the Frankenstein films, that's in Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, which is not always a popular choice, but, um, but it must've been early in my, in my Terence Fisher viewing because I, I still love it. And it's probably the one I revisit the most along with Brides of Dracula. Mm -hmm. And of course he, he basically reinvented the genre right there, you know, in, in, in 1957, it had, it had kind of run its course after the, after the universal years. And, uh, and, you know, there are, there are other examples in, in the fifties, but the fifties and late forties are kind of dry for the, for the horror genre compared to, you know, the rest of cinema history. Uh, and so, uh, Chris Frankenstein really revitalized it and, you know, obviously added, uh, added technical blood and, uh, and, and all the things that, that, that kicked it into the sixties, you know, and kicked it forwards. But yeah, Curse of Frankenstein, I th still think is fantastic. It's, uh, Peter Cushing has, 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 has never been better at just how cold he is and, and scientific that, that he's obsessed with his vision, you know, and, and, you know, he's like, well, I believe in science. This is, this is what I do. It's more important than, than, you know, some individual's life. <laughs> so, and that's, and that was, that was kind of Frankenstein's way of looking at things. And in a way he was doing it to, you know, forward, uh, forward science. So, so there you go. But yeah, Curse of Frankenstein, I still think is an absolute, absolute masterpiece. Oh, absolutely. Yep. I mean, yeah, because what is it? It's the next year then that he does Horror of Dracula? Yeah. yeah. 58. Yep. 58. And, you know, not that he's just like simply remaking these movies. I mean, he was, the, I believe there was a stipulation by Universal that he wasn't allowed, especially with Curse of Frankenstein, to like, he wasn't allowed to replicate the look of the monster. Makeup. Yeah, that's and the right. Makeup and the walk. And yeah, so well, Roy Ashton came came up with the makeup uh, for, for for Christopher Lee and in Curse of Frankenstein. And it's obviously wildly different from from you know what probably the most iconic makeup in cinema history is that um, is the uh, the Boris Karloff makeup uh, mm -hmm. with the flat head and the bolts. But um, but I don't know. I think Christopher Lee looks like a a, a patched together <laughs> person, you know, from various bits that are stolen at various uh, levels of decay. So I think it's actually a pretty impressive look as well. And I think we, um, again, like coming back to the, the sexuality in Dracula, especially in 58, um, pretty widely accepted, at least as far as I know, um, is kind of the first time in the Dracula story, as far as movies, 
where he's really pretty aggressively sexual. And that's a big part of the story um, is, you know, you know, bringing in his seductive ways and all of yeah. that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I never thought that it was it was a particularly. I never thought of Christopher Lee as a particularly sexual icon, but uh, I think it's more that he's just such a charming gentleman. You yeah. know, as opposed to somebody when you look at him, you would not invite him into the house because he's <laughs> chilly and creepy. You know, and looks yeah. like you know somebody who might bite you. Uh, but uh, but in the case of Christopher Lee, he swoops down the stairs to introduce himself, and uh, you know, and is generally just a, a debonair fella. I mean, didn't this have a lot to do? Like the censors were really after this movie when it came out. Yeah, but I think there was as much to do with with the the violence as well, wasn't it? I mean, there was yeah. there was a certain amount of stuff that that wasn't certainly allowed for England uh, that that was legendary uh, and and didn't actually show up until recently, like the extra shot of him rotting at the end but um but yeah i mean certainly it, it certainly in things in in terms of the way that he is uh a, 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 the attractive you know um exotic person to as opposed to you know michael goff's much more kind of uptight english person in in the film it definitely had that angle going for it as well um, and then, of course, the, the climax, the famous climax that, uh, that you know, has really never been bettered in any Dracula film, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, no. No chance. I agree with you. Yeah. Definitely agree. battle to the death. Um, yeah. Um, and then, so at this point, Fisher is, uh, takes off. Yeah. The, the amount of uh, movies being made once, once we hit, uh, horror of Dracula is pretty insane because we have um, we have also in 58 Revenge of Frankenstein um, so immediately you know one year after Curse back again <laughs> um, and we've also got let's see yeah, and then 59 is nuts because we have Hound of the Baskervilles Mummy The Man Who Cheated Death um, Stranglers of Bombay um, and Man Who Cheated Death I didn't need to rewatch for this but any excuse <laughs> Um, to watch that movie, movie. It's, yeah. oh, it's the the I think the the universe the universes that Fisher creates um, are so fully formed, mm -hmm. and that really stuck with me on these rewatches this time through. Is that every time one of his movies ended, it was jarring. Even though I'm watching them, you know, on my TV in my bedroom and not in a theater, um, every time it was like a crazy snap back to reality because I'm so lost in these worlds. And he also does it in a lot less time than most people usually need. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Re Revenge of Frankenstein was particularly interesting because if I'm not mistaken, it's a while since I've seen that one, but if I'm not mistaken, that, like Frankenstein is be, must be destroyed, doesn't actually have a monster in it. It has somebody who has done an experiment on that basically goes wrong. Um, and so uh, and so I always thought that basically he's, that this guy he's done an experiment on starts uh, developing a craving for human flesh. And... Uh, and and that's kind of the monstrous uh, part about it. And I think uh, Frankenstein must be destroyed much later in the late 60s was the same thing. And I, I, I understand from Tony Dalton, who wrote the recent book on Terence Fisher, that, that that wasn't as popular for, uh, for Hammer. That's why they had to go back and do, you know, Frankenstein creating a monster uh, mm -hmm. with horror of Frankenstein and then Frankenstein and the monster from hell. 
Um, Although Horror of Frankenstein, I think, was directed by Fisher. I don't even remember who directed that one. Was that Freddie Francis? Let's look. Let's see. We got the internet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure it wasn't Fisher, though. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, then the other Frankenstein that wasn't directed, Freddie Francis did The Evil of Frankenstein, which is the one that did have the, the Carlock yeah. makeup. Yes. Carlock esque yeah. makeup on Kiwi Kingston, because that was a universal co production. When I when I uh, when I rewatched Revenge of Frankenstein, uh, I also thought a lot about one of the earlier ones I had not seen until now, the four sided triangle, mm-hmm. um, because with again this like in that movie, you know, spoiler alert uh, for people, but when once they create the second wait horror of frankenstein is jimmy sangster i was about to say yeah, oh, yeah. Shocked me. It's like, <laughs> i'm like i should know that i sat with yep. jimmy sangster doing the commentary yeah. <laughs> but yeah just the um i love i love fisher's obsession um with that idea of these people obsessed like you were saying obsessed with science at the cost of anything and of course in foresighted triangle it's also driven by lust that this man wants to also be able to have a life with this woman who married his buddy instead um but yeah just the way he the way he portrays these like tortured obsessive scientists uh is pretty incredible and in in foresighted triangle i was pretty blown away uh i just yeah i I think the way that i think the way that fisher uh really drills in on obsessive personalities is Mm -hmm. something that i noticed a lot um yeah no i mean he's 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 definitely an auteur in that he has, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of themes that he likes to return to throughout his movies, and it's interesting. One of the reasons we have so much Terence Fisher centric stuff in the extras of on on the Christopher Lee box, even though he only directed one of the films in it, is that um, is that to me it's quite interesting that there's not that much that's Terence Fisher specific in terms of writing over the years but conversely there is so much about hammer like everything about hammer you could possibly imagine so you could say that it's definitely been covered you know it's not like he's a forgotten artist or something like that but he's definitely grouped in as as you know the hammer director as opposed to you know terence fisher the filmmaker yet there's very few other filmmakers who have made that many bona fide classics in the genre and uh uh, you know, I, I struggle to think of somebody who's who, who has, uh, and he's uh, you know, and, and and some interesting films to go along with it, but quite a lot of them that are genuinely you know classic movies. Oh yeah, I mean, Hammer had a lot of yeah, they had a lot of great directors on the on the payroll. I mean, Seth Holt, you have Freddie Francis, you have Roy John Baker. Mm-hmm. The the, um, the staggering amount of quality you get from Fisher is obviously very notable. But what also is interesting is he does seem to be something of a temperamental auteur in that sometimes you kind of, at least for me, I get the sense that he doesn't have as much interest in a project. Well, so that's, that's the other thing is that it seems like in a very kind of Englishman of the era kind of way, very much downplayed his artistry uh, as, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm good at what I do, but I'm an artisan you know, as, a, as opposed to an artist. And, um, and he's like, that was just the job that was offered to me, you know, and that happened to be successful. So, so, you know, but, but at the same time, I think, you know, speaking to Tony Dalton, who knew him, um, it, it, you know, as he started to be appreciated in the latter years of his life, he definitely embraced that and definitely started to, uh, you know, enjoy the fact that he was somebody who did, uh, who did make a massive contribution to genre cinema and cinema in general. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, and, but he still never really like, it's not like the guy was ever handed like big budgets, like a mega, mega budget. And yes. Because, because basically it was after his career was essentially over after Frankenstein the Monster from hell, his health was declining and stuff like that. So that was kind of when the bottom fell out of the British industry for a start. Uh, so basically there was no money for, for British cinema in the seventies. Uh, but, but secondly, it was like as he started to be appreciated, it was it was you know it was a little bit too late to to hire him for other gigs. Yeah, I think it's just interesting when you're able because knowing that he didn't have large budgets and you're able to like like I, I recently rewatched um, uh, Frankenstein Created Woman, which is is not a bad movie, but you can tell it's like the budget is low on that movie because I feel like most of the sets are the same space, like redressed. Like there's that landlord's uh, bar that I think over half the movies takes place in that. And um, formally, I I almost felt like he felt maybe hampered by the budget, but even probably less of a budget for the earth dies screaming, but it's like, he's able to just explode the screen with so much dread and uh, just this lonely feeling. So it is very interesting to see what, you know, it's not just budget for him. What does he feel like he really wants to give his his all to? And what does he just like, well, this is, you know, whatever. I'm just getting to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think all of them obviously took it very seriously. It, you know, took their work very seriously. And, and of course, you know, uh, um, on the other side of, of the auteur theory is the fact that, you know, a movie is a collaboration. And, and of course, there were so many other important factors in in, in those movies, which made them what they were in terms of like production design and music and, and the actors and, and, and all that stuff, which where, where these people really brought something special to these films, which, you know, defied the budgets that they were given. Uh, what was the, the, the main director of photography? Yep, I remember I wrote it down. It was like Jimmy Sangster, like on all of these. Credits. Jack Asher. Yeah, Jack Asher. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, Jack Asher. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, and of course, Roy Ashton and uh, his makeup as well was was also essential. But yes, uh, uh, the uh, the cinematography was was phenomenal in these movies. Yeah, mm-hmm. make, talk about making a lot with uh, with a small space. Oh yeah, just incredible oh. what he does. Um, yeah, one of the ones that we we were both excited about um, that I I hadn't seen until during lockdown because um, before we were even doing this, I was just you know realizing I was like, wow, there's still too much Terrence Fisher that I have left to see. Um, you know, and I picked up one of the one of those indicator hammer box sets and a uh, uh, Stranglers of Bombay was in there, and that one I was like, yeah, you know, I wasn't that excited to watch it, um, but holy shit, that movie. That really feels like an uptick in like the sinister. Uh, <laughs> well, it's also not dated, but particularly well yeah, that one. Correct. No. <laughs> many, uh, many an uncomfortable uh, moment for viewers who haven't seen. Um, but the craft on display, uh, and we were talking about before you hopped on here. Actually, I'm forgetting her name, but the actress who's the one woman in the um, in the gang of stranglers, uh, who just lustily might as well be licking her lips but anytime someone is being killed uh or executed rather uh her just like yeah lustily watching it happen is pretty wild and i don't personally i don't i'm not sure i know of a another movie from the 50s that was doing that sort of thing um yeah (laughs) 
Oh, so wild. But yeah, even the, you know, and at the end of the day, I certainly wouldn't call it one of his best movies. And again, very dated in a lot of ways. But what I've learned in doing all of this is he's now firmly one of those uh, tours for me that even if the movie doesn't land or, you know, falls flat, always worthwhile. Um, you know, and you always get something from him for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, around this time, I think we're right after Stranglers of Bombay. We've got Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, Mm -hmm. which not one of my favorites of the guy, I will admit. But I I, I, it's very interesting in that it doesn't try to make the the Mr. Hyde character a Frederick March monster. He's like the book. He becomes a new man. Christopher Lee's that is just sleaziest in that one. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. <laughs> I, I actually saw that one much later. And so I was, and I heard only kind of like mediocre things about it. So I was pleasantly surprised by, by two yep. faces of Dr. Jekyll. Though I dismissed it, it is not to be dismissed. It's a pretty <laughs> interesting movie. I yeah. just think when you think of like the movie that he made the same year, like Brides Dracula. Right, which is a bona fide classic. I mean, that's definitely one of my favorite movies of all time i think uh again another one i saw on the bbc watched it with my dad late at night and uh i remember being quite confused why does dracula look like this kind of blonde boofy haired young man um and uh, but as it stuck with me i was like that's so cool that <laughs> and 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 again talk about a climax of a movie i mean the oh. idea of jumping on the windmill and making it into the shadow of a cross is phenomenal after, after he splattered holy water in his face and burnt him my goodness that's so amazing i love the idea of peter cushing on set being like listen i already jumped off a table and pulled the blinds down and killed him now i need to jump on something bigger yeah exactly i was like shit we've got to actually build this windmill oh <laughs> we can't just use the matte painting yeah no, it's, it's oh and the fact that right before that peter cushing just burnt his own neck bitten as well that's another great thing and then um then the two uh, vam- uh vampire women just kind of looking on two of the best looking vampires in cinema history oh my god just look at uh, frida jackson in particular is uh is 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 absolutely phenomenal yeah you know? perfect tins all around there yes exactly <laughs> mm-hmm. and i've noticed that re-watching that one it's interesting to think of Fisher emerging at this time, also with the emergence of someone like Mario Bava yeah. and how we're seeing this like bold new use of color. Yes. And I, I think uh, Brides of Dracula is one of the most stunning examples of um, color at that time. And it also is one of the most stunning examples of just mounting dread that just, just when you think you're not going to be able to take any more of it, just the way it just builds and builds in that movie. Yeah, yeah, the whole, uh, actually Frida Jackson, I said it was Frida Jackson, it's Andre Melli, but uh, Frida Jackson is the one who is the, basically the assistant in the house who has that maniacal cackle. Yes. Um, and uh, and she also tries to talk the vampire out of the grave in that really weird scene, lying on top of the coffin and like telling her to force her way out, even though she's lying on top of her. You know, there's so many just strange choices in, in this movie, both in the screenplay and, and, and in the way it was directed. Uh, uh, just the whole setup with the mother who used to have great parties, but she was embarrassed of her son has this whole, you know, weird subtext as well, which was completely lost on me as a youngster, but, but it was still <laughs> utterly, uh, utterly fascinating, you know, and just not the kind of setup I was used to at the time. Oh, when she breaks out of those confines and he asks her down the stairs, it's just genuinely like unsettling. Yes. 
Absolutely. And the staking in that scene is oh. phenomenal uh, I, I, of the mother. And then the way he holds his cross where he does it sideways like that and, uh, <laughs> is, is there's just so many odd choices in the movie that just make it so unique. You know, uh, they, they, the guy who's looking after the coffin and the padlocks just fall off, even though they're <sighs> still locked. You know, there's there's so much cool shit in Brides of Dracula. It's it, it's hard to talk. Oh, yeah. yeah, we high we all highly recommend Brides of Dracula. <laughs> oh yeah, yes. <laughs> that's actually one of the I've used that movie before. Um, when I've met people in my life who had not uh, outside, usually outside of Bava and a little bit of Hitchcock, people who have not watched, uh, you know, horror from the '60s or you know, or earlier, pretty much the 70s and up. And that's one of the movies that I use to convince people. <laughs> Absolutely. Dracula. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, no. Trust me. Watch this one. Tail into the 50s, start of the 60s. Trust me. And you're going to get so hungry for this shit. Yeah. And it always works. <laughs> well, it's true. It's actually it's actually easier in that respect to introduce to it to a new audience of, who is unfamiliar with this era of movies. It's it's a better one to watch than Horror of Dracula because Horror of Dracula, you know, is a lot more traditionally uh, structured, you mm-hmm. know, and doesn't have all those elements that we just talked about that are, yeah. that that really make it just, uh, you know, things that haven't been repeated a million times in in other Dracula and vampire movies over the years. Yeah, it's the weirdness that you mentioned, you know, also just the like <laughs> the peculiarity of that fucking movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's unfortunate it. about the bat. I have to say that was <laughs> that was always something I was the like, bat they couldn't have movie. they couldn't have figured out a better bat than that with all the resources that they seem to have <laughs> had at their disposal, <laughs> you know. But hey, that's a minor quibble. It's it's oh, better yeah. than the fuzzier, but the fuzzy blood spitting bat in Scars of Dracula. I'll <laughs> give them that one. I'll give that's, you that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I and since we're talking about the Dracula movies, I also really want to underline um, how great I think Dracula Prince of Darkness is. And it was always one that I kind of thought of as a lesser film. And until I got to see the the new Blu-ray of it, which with the actual like US print in it with the color fixed. Um, did you were you involved in that? I wasn't, no. Okay. No. Just want to make Although, sure. I mean, I was I was around for the uh, for the commentary recording, which was carried over, but that was done at the act. Actually, no, that was even before that was even right before I started working with Bill. The first one that I did with Christopher Lee was I can't remember. Sorry. <laughs> what are you? I was not, obviously it was the Wicker Man. That was the first one I interviewed uh, oh, okay. Christopher Lee for. Yeah, that was my first job for Bill. Yeah. Amazing. That's a pretty um, good first gig. Yeah. Not bad. Um, <laughs> not bad. <laughs> But yeah, Dracula Prince of Darkness also has this, I think, just expert building of dread. So I'm going to I'm going to say something pretty much blasphemous as far as horror fans are concerned. But Dracula Prince of Darkness is one of my least favorite of the Hammer Draculas. And it's mainly because uh, Dracula doesn't show up until halfway through the movie. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and and then five minutes later, He's basically sploshed into ice, and that's that. I mean, he's hardly a prince of darkness if you can essentially <laughs> splash ice water on him and he's gone. You know, so and uh, and Christopher Lee always had this thing about the fact that he refused to say the dialogue because it was so terrible. But uh, but you know, the, the 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 truth, as I understand it, is is that they, Dracula never had any dialogue in that. That was just Christopher Lee's sort of being above the. Uh, being above doing Dracula again. That's, you know, something okay. that you'll see in our extras that we've got interviews with him from the 60s through the 2000s and 
all the way through, he's still denying that he was in all these Dracula movies. Hilarious. <laughs> Incredible. Hilarious, yeah, because I remember saying, yeah, Jimmy Sangster said he never gave him dialogue, actually, yeah. for the movie, because he says that there was a line that was like, I am the apocalypse. Yeah. It's like, yeah. I guess if that's a line, I wouldn't have said that shit either. Yeah, but yeah. The dread builds so wonderfully that when it, he does arrive, it's like... Yeah, that that whole resurrection the, through the whole like Barbara Shelley, Barbara Shelley stuff is 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 fantastic, no doubt. Yeah. But it just seems that they've taken so much time to get Dracula. And again, this might be you know twelve year old me being like, where the fuck is Dracula? You know, I'm, I'm, it's it's midnight already, and I got to go to bed before my parents realize I'm still watching this. Where's Dracula? Uh, so anyway, and so it was mainly because you know he, when he finally did show up, yes, and then it's like he never he barely makes it out of of the castle in the same way people always complain about Dracula 80 1972 never makes it out of that desecrated church it's not that different in Dracula Prince of Darkness sorry, sorry hammer people <laughs> <laughs> well yeah and also he snaps like a, a, a sword in front of them and then he like goes to strangle the guy and the guy somehow gets out of the strangle it's like the motherfucker just broke a, yeah. a sword <laughs> exactly. um, yeah. and and I, I had always that similar feeling with uh, Curse of the Werewolf when I was younger, because I just always remember watching that being like, where, where is this werewolf? Yeah. I'm seeing a lot of <laughs> well, cursed the- stuff, but I'm not <laughs> seeing a werewolf. Well, the funny thing with Curse of the Werewolf is, and, and I definitely don't want to turn this into a like, you know, what's disappointing about the Hammer <laughs> Movies oh. podcast. But I, when I first saw Curse of the Werewolf, it was one of the first horror movies I ever saw, but it was switched on about halfway through the movie. It was like, quick, turn the channel to BBC Two, Curse of the Werewolf's on. So it was like werewolf action, you know, and then that whole amazing climax. I was like, this is fucking amazing. You know what I mean? But so when I eventually got to see the whole movie again, I was like, yeah, this the, the setup really does take a long time before we get to, before we get to old well. Werewolf. But it's exquisitely <laughs> shot. I mean, it's one yeah. of, I would say, his most beautiful looking movies. Yes. And I think, and it's around the same time he did Phantom of the Opera as well. So he was definitely trying to um, uh, to put, you know, more kind of romance into the, uh, and, and melancholy into these stories, you know, and like really go for it with kind of the sad uh, uh, the sad monsters in the film, mm-hmm. which he which he'd really made Dracula into Dracula and Frank and the Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein's monster and curse of uh, curse of Frankenstein is not uh, quite as um, sympathetic as 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 Boris Karloff. Although again, he's not really in it that much. But um, yeah, but you know, he's definitely brutal right right from right from the beginning. You know. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I do I do love Curse of the Werewolf actually. But as as I've got older, it's like I appreciate the the setup a lot more. But but uh, but certainly when I saw it when I was younger, after that first time, I was like, wow, I didn't really miss much in that first half. Just turn Oliver Reed into a werewolf, please. Yeah, because <laughs> he's a bloody good werewolf, no doubt about uh, it. One of the best. Yeah. And it is almost as like pretty very effective. You wait that long because when he shows up, you're like. This is very true. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. Reed was always worth the wait, you know, whenever he showed up in movies, always mm-hmm. worth it. <laughs> um, and so, like, at this time, right, so we have Curse of the Werewolf, um, Phantom of the Opera. So Phantom of the Opera flopped yes. um, for Hammer. Uh, and so around that time, uh, from what I understand, that's when he then signed up with CCC Film uh, to do Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace, which, of course, you are including in the upcoming box set. Uh, what, what do you think about that one? 
Well, so Sherlock Holmes with the bad, deadly necklace is a curio. And uh, and now it looks better than than it ever did, and 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 you know people will finally be able to assess it on its own merits because it's looked like shit for so many yeah. years. Oh yeah. Um, but but definitely it was not the film that Terence Fisher wanted to make. I mean he he wanted to do more Sherlock Holmes movies. Again, I discussed this with Tony Dalton, his biographer, on on the discs. But he's he's the one who told me that he wanted to do more Sherlock's after Hound of the Baskervilles. But as successful as Hound of the Baskervilles was, it wasn't as successful as Dracula and Frankenstein. So Hammer decided, like, let's stick with the with the actual horror. You know, Hound of the Baskervilles is horror adjacent, but most of the Sherlock Holmes stories aren't necessarily. So, so uh, Fisher did want to do more of that. Christopher Lee always wanted to play play Holmes, so it seemed like a perfect match. But when he got to Germany, the resources weren't there that that he had hoped to get and uh, they didn't record live sound on the set so that's why there is no version with Christopher Lee's voice in it and they've dubbed him with this American actor's voice which obviously is extremely frustrating because anyone who knows you know genre cinema knows Christopher Lee's voice it's pretty yeah. fucking distinctive you know so it seems odd that an American's voice is coming out of his mouth it's know? so weird yeah watching yeah. it the other day because I'd forgotten that yeah. Uh, and when it started, uh, yeah, it took me a minute because I was like, man, I mean, it was like five in the morning. It was like an early watch, you know, kind of movie. So I was like, maybe I'm just imagining this. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's been many rumors for many years, again, not helped by Christopher Lee, because Christopher Lee, <laughs> again, alleged that, that that somebody somewhere has hidden the audio, you know, and it's, but it's it's not true. It just wasn't recorded live. And they didn't have the money to bring him back to actually do his own dubbing. Uh, mm-hmm. which often happened with the European films of that time. Not always. He did sometimes did his own, his own dubbing or they recorded live sound. But in this case and in the case of some others in Italy and whatnot, they just said, fuck it, we can't get Christopher Lee back for another day. Let's, uh, let's just dub him <laughs> with somebody else. Still yep. Christopher Lee, we can still put his name on the poster. Yeah, it's, it's a, such a weird experience without his voice. Um, I can't wait to see it. <clears throat> looking good finally yeah no it's fantastic and there's fantastic yeah. things in it and it's it's also got Crawley yeah. walters another another uh hammer actor playing watson as well and he's he's particularly yeah exactly so so there's a there's a lot to to recommend it but it's definitely kind of uh a, ultimately uh, a failure and i think terence fisher thought so as well it wasn't the film that he wanted to make so uh so unfortunately it was kind of it was kind of sold short Mm-hmm. Yep. I'll say like watching it, rewatching it this time, uh, I had so much more fun than I ever had. Um, Cause I think, I think when I first saw it, when I was, you know, getting into, of course, came in through the bigger Terrence Fisher movies and hammer stuff. When I saw it, I was just like, Oh, this, you know, I didn't research anything on it. And I was just like, Oh, this must be like a, a weird Sherlock Holmes kind of horror movie. And so when I first saw it, I did not like it. And I was like, Nope. Mm-hmm. But this time, I I just giggled so much. Like yeah. there, it you can just feel how much fun is being had, and it's just silly and to the perfect degree. I think. <laughs> yeah, and it's but yeah. it, it's one of those ones where it's not really got a fair shake on its own terms yeah. because it's only had these terrible bootleg releases over the years, which is the case with a lot of you know non-studio pictures of 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 the era. They basically fell into the public domain and. TV masters have been uh, regurgitated over the years and, and generations down and stuff like that. So when we had the opportunity to actually scan the film elements in Germany, 
you know, that's when it's like, okay, it is worth, even though it's available on YouTube and, and, you know, all these shitty outlets to watch the, the cropped, you know, multi generations down version, we can upgrade it enough that it's like, okay, this, this is actually worth doing. We did the same with Nightmare Castle and, and some other films where it's like they're readily available. But if you actually want to see how the movie was supposed to look, then, then this is it. That's one of the, that's one of my favorite things about the work that you do and Severn does, um, you know, is giving things a fair shake, giving it a chance, you know, and I, and I always, I also love, you know, I love honesty of like, you know, you saying this isn't some, you know, it's not an underloved masterpiece or anything, but let's give people a fucking chance to watch this yeah. movie uh, in the yeah. best possible way they can. Well, and let's face it as, as genre fans and as the, yeah. as, uh, for better, want of a better word, cult movie fans, we are completists. So we do want <laughs> to see these movies, you know, yeah. in, in the best possible way, you know, and then they can be properly assessed and, and maybe reassessed uh, or, or maybe not, but you know, that's, that's at least you get the, the film a fair chance, you know? Yeah. Well, the next movie he would do, I don't know if we'll ever get a fair reassessment of would be the horror of it all, mm-hmm. um, which is, I, I guess kind of sticks with his remakes of universal stock movie. I mean, it's kind of the old dark house. Yes. Um, I don't have anything positive to say about that one. So. No, and apparently neither did Terence Fisher. Yeah. So, so, so it's it's another one where he's like, "Oh, sod it, I'll go back and work for Hammer." You know, <laughs> and a and a good thing he did because his next movie is I that my favorite Terence Fisher, which is The Gorgon. And yeah, that's a great film. Yeah. I that's just one that I feel um, along with like The Devil Rides Out is just the purest distillation of what I see as um terence fisher mm-hmm. and uh i mean the gorgon is just one of the most excellent movies indicator did a great blu-ray of it if you want to see it just pop I, i've always thought of that movie very similar to mario baba's kill baby kill they seem to have a very they seem to mm-hmm. share a very similar symbiotic relationship um mm-hmm. i i'm not i don't remember when kill baby kill came out i think it was i think it was a couple of years later wasn't it 66 or 67 so, so yeah. okay so i wonder maybe what influence maybe the gorgon had had on baba because they do seem to be very similar films uh, I, I it's possible uh you know i've uh i've I, I imagine that Barber was aware of the developments, uh, you know, with, in, in, in horror film history with what Hammer were doing. So, so it would make sense. But, uh, but I have no intel as far as that was actually the case. Yeah, Kill Baby Kill was 66. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, on the subject of the Gorgon, actually, we got this, um, we got this film called Horror! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, which was a Swiss documentary that was made in 1964 which as far as I'm aware, it's the first documentary about horror films. Oh, wow. Um, and I, and I, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say I'm like a historian of that kind of thing. But I know when I started doing uh, special features, one of the reasons I wanted to do it, because there were so few, you know, firsthand documentaries with, with the filmmakers about these movies, uh, about the making of low-budget horror movies. And so... This Swiss documentary, I guess, was made for the national um, TV station in Switzerland, and it was shot on the set of the footage on the set of the Gorgon, with the Gorgon makeup being applied and and her being walked to set in makeup. Uh, there is footage on the set of Mask of the Red Death, interviews with Roger Corman and Vincent Price, 
There is footage with uh, Boris Karloff being interviewed as well. And there's footage of Christopher Lee being interviewed oh, and talking about horror. And this is all, you know, going to be on the extra disc in the, in the Christopher Lee set. Okay. So, yeah, it's, okay. it's uh, Roy Ashton, the makeup artist, briefly is interviewed as well. So there's all these oh, incredible people, yeah. even though it's only brief. Uh, you know, it's, I, it's, I was unaware of its existence until, you know, we started digging a bit. And that was, that was one of the kind of crown jewels of the extras. Oh, I cannot wait for this damn box. <laughs> yeah. If I pre-ordered it, when can I expect it? I well, so yeah, yeah, this is one of those things that that uh, that that uh, this last year has been has messed with us a bit because when we've done box sets like the Lindsay set, the Al Adamson set, the uh, Andy Milligan set, the estimated time of estimated time of arrival for manufacture from overseas has always been uh, on the optimistic side. So <laughs> I am uh, expecting my Christopher Lee boxes to the office tomorrow. So that means they, they definitely, they already exist. They're already in California, yes. which means they'll start shipping out uh, to people who ordered it directly from the Severin site this week. So, oh, and they'll probably yeah. be shipping over the next couple of weeks and uh, everyone who pre-ordered will, will get them, who pre-ordered from the Severn site will get them soon, but we had to push back the actual street date to June 22nd. So anyone who ordered it from Amazon or, or other outlets will get it later. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, okay, let's see. We are, we're up to, um, where are we at? We're at uh, the Earth streaming. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of his influence on people, I mean, maybe, maybe he didn't influence Bob, but we don't know, but I have to imagine a, a certain man, George Romero, saw the Earth Dice Screaming. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it's it, for those who haven't seen it. It's a, uh, um, I guess technically, uh, Terrence Fisher working in the sci-fi genre, but it seems to have more of a lineage with the zombie genre. I mean, there yes. are robots, but there are also zombies too, and um, it does. It, maybe it's not as bleak of an ending as Night of the Living Dead, but I do see so much of Night of the Living Dead in this movie on rewatch. It's like it's it's amazing. Yeah. And the yeah. Opening, one of the chilliest openings to any movie for my money that exists. Like holy shit. Yeah, rewatching it this morning, soon as I started it, I was just like, oh God, I forgot how long we just sit with quiet watching people drop. And then just these beautifully composed shots of just bodies everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. my god, beautiful. Oh, it reminded me of that episode eight of Twin Peaks: The Return, where they're just everyone's just <laughs> dropping. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Maybe Lynch is secretly. That, yeah, that is that is high praise indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a fantastic. I mean, Romero and Lynch influenced by the Earth Dice Screaming. We've been trying to keep ourselves in check, but our text back and forth as we were preparing for this, we've definitely like really like every other day one of us is like Fisher it did everything. He's the, <laughs> you know, like it's he's the reason for all these horror filmmakers, everybody like yep, that's it. Yeah. Now, how did he? Who did he influence with walking carpet creatures with big, long, spindly things that, that spit out of the front? 
people. Talking about Island of Terror there, which is about oh, yeah. skipped Dracula Prince of Darkness because we already talked about it. But <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, Island of Terror. I mean, I'm trying to think of others where someone sucks the bones out of. I, that, the idea is so amazing. <laughs> the bones have been sucked away by this weird slithery carpet creature with a long kind of tendon. Yeah. <laughs> which is almost an adorable creature it's just oh yeah it's adorable yeah. <laughs> randomly thought of when thinking about this one what popped into my head because i rewatched it recently was the fucking uh sov movie night uh night feeder <laughs> and that have you guys seen that i'm not familiar with it uh-huh. no. oh my god there's a well there's a there's a a baby that uh, with its str- strange tendril that goes up your nose and sucks your brain out. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it made me think of that. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't imagine there's a direct lineage there, but sucking <laughs> <laughs> something out of someone's body. <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. Abel Ferrara's body snatchers. Yeah, I don't know. Could be, could be. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. I'm sure he would be the first to say that Island of Terror is. His <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a pretty good little movie, Island of Terror. I must it, say. it is, it is, and and so and then around the same time, he also did uh, Island of the Burning Damned, which is also known as Night of the Big Heat, which was his other non-Hammer uh, movie of of, of that uh, particular couple of years, like surrounded by all these Hammer classics. And then he had this this another strange movie with uh, I think Patrick Allen's in that and. Um, uh, Cushing and Lee both Cushing in that Lee as well. Both, yeah. yeah, yeah, they're both in that as well, right? Yeah, again, another one I saw on late night TV, and that it is about you know everybody dying from a big heat. <laughs> Can we connect nowadays? I don't know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, I I really like Night of the Big Heat. It's yeah. not. I, I don't know if I would say it's one of my favorite Fishers, but I I rewatched it recently, and I, I was just like, this is. Yeah, well, it's one like Island of Terror. It's one of those interesting curios that that he's got. Even though I wouldn't say it's one of his classics, it's it's definitely this. This was an odd film at, for its era. Yeah, really odd movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and I think in between those movies, he did Frankenstein Created Woman. Yes, one of the one of the greatest for my money. We read at the Devil Rides Out. Yeah, <sighs> yeah, oh, yeah. This is one of the earliest ones that I saw. When I saw this movie in high school, I didn't know, um, you know, I didn't really know who Terrence Fisher was yet. Um, but this movie made me know who Terrence Fisher was. <laughs> as soon as it ended, I was like, who's responsible for this? I have to know. And this yeah. oh, I just got so obsessed. That one is, oh, man. Oh, I remember watching that with my dad. Um, he was probably playing on Turner Classic Movies back in the day when run Halloween season. And I, I just remember him being like... Uh, Cause he knew I liked horror movies. He was like, Oh, it's got the Christopher Lee in it. And I was like, I love, let's, I love horror movies. Let's watch it. And I just remember my dad just loving that movie. Mm-hmm. Just couldn't get enough of it. And we both were just, were just in rapt attention watching that movie. It's, it's one of his best paced movies. Yeah. Yeah. No, me and my dad watched that too on, on, on television. And uh, my dad was used to read a lot of Dennis Wheatley when he was in school. So, so he, he loved Dennis Wheatley. So he had a particular affinity for this one over, you know, the stuff with the monsters in and whatnot. Um, you know, I think he erroneously said, you know, this could, this, this, this is more believable. This could actually happen. I don't know, I don't know about the giant tarantula or the yeah, devil, yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> the, effects, the effects are not usually, uh, it's not the thing I take away from that one. Yes. The, the effects are dated, but it's, um, 
those aside, if, if you can get on the wavelength of, uh, you know, tension and suspense. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Got, and just, just that scene where the, where the dude's driving and the car goes out of control and then his windscreen uh, just becomes all cloudy and he has to punch through it in order to be able to see. I mean, mm-hmm. incredible, incredible sequence. Yeah. I mean, the sequence when he's up, when Christopher Lee's up in the, the occult room and they're just looking, they find the chicken in there and it's just yeah. like, these guys are right downstairs. They're going to come up. I, I just remember <laughs> the kid just, that just, I was sweating profusely. Through. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and Charles Gray, of course, is amazing. And, uh, and yeah. the whole, the whole ceremony in the woods with the goats of Mendy is fantastic. Yeah. Man. Just delicious stuff. This is just like a deliciously macabre movie. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I love to, I was thinking about, uh, when I was reading one of the, one of the booklets that came with Gorgon, um, uh, a quote from Fisher talking about, uh, basically a defense of sorts as people were, you know, uh, coming at horror films and saying, you know, ruining youths, the classic shit, you know, yeah. making people murderers and all of that. And he just, the way he talks about the macabre, uh, and he reads up Grand Guignol a lot, but just the way he talks about uh, how healthy essentially he thinks it is mm-hmm. to have these experiences and get this shit out of us and like pull out of there. I, that's, I think that's such a uh, great perspective. And I think probably a pretty early person to, in, in you know, in the realm of movies to put it that directly. Yeah, is that Christopher Lee or Terence Fisher? Terence Fisher. Terence Fisher, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. But Christopher Lee said that a lot as well. Like he's conversely to whenever Dracula was brought up, whenever anyone talked about Dennis Wheatley, he was all about it and talking about how dangerous the occult these people exist. I've heard, I've seen them, you know, and all that kind of thing. But he also w- was on that side of things that it's like there's actually nothing wrong with uh, with being interested in this and, and watching this, you know. So, uh, so he, probably he thought it was important to tell these stories. Yeah. Probably what makes his performance so believable in that movie. Like, I felt like if I were captured by a cultist, I would really hope Christopher Lee came to the, the <laughs> exactly. rescue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. One. So now we're at his last two. Yep. And we end with, uh, uh, the Frankenstein movies and uh, two of his best Frankenstein movies. I think. I think Frankenstein must be destroyed. It was fantastic. Freddie Jones in that movie is is phenomenal. Talk about talk about a sympathetic monster. Oh. Uh, you know that's 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 really incredible. And they're and they're really uh, exploring interesting themes with with Frankenstein there. That like the idea of the brain transplants and 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 who are you when it's when it's done. Uh, I, I thought that was that was pretty ambitious stuff. And. And when, I think that was one of, I read that that was one of the first times that he really had a say in who he got to cast. And he had really wanted Freddie Jones for that role. Mm-hmm. And I, I just That would make him. sense because Freddie Jones, obviously a phenomenal actor and, uh, you know, went on to be Bites in The Elephant Man and, uh, you know, had had an incredible uh, career. But, uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, a brilliant actor. And he really sold the the the, the character in Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal role that he has in that. Um, and then and we have a pretty solid gap of time. Yeah, well, so I guess he, he broke his leg twice walking across the road from the pub. I may be misremembering this, but he was quite the heavy drinker and smoker, Terence Fisher was. So, uh, and, I, and I think he got run over twice outside the same pub, which was nearby, uh, nearby the studio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, and... and Sorry, uh, Hammer Historians, if I'm misremembering that, but I'm pretty sure that that's what it was. So that was kind of put him out of commission 
for a while. And, uh, and then, of course, Hammer was on the decline. They were trying to get new blood in to, in to direct the films to try and keep them up with the times and, and you know, kind of sex, sex up the movies. That's when they brought in, uh, you know, Peter Sasdy and, and Peter Sykes and Roy Wood Baker and, uh, and Alan Gibson and people like that to, to John Huff to direct these movies. And they had a lot of, you know, success. Uh, I, as far as I'm concerned, in the making of the films, but I but I think it was diminishing as far as the the actual success of the film. So they went more traditional, back to you know where it started essentially with Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, and um, and I I love Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. Again, it's possible okay. because it's the first uh, Terence Fisher that I ever saw. Um, the monster himself is the biggest letdown of the movie because the makeup is just so kind of clunky. You know, and uh, so it's not Dave Prowse's fault or anything, but they tried to make this humongous beast and it just kind of looked a bit like you could kind of kick him over, you know, <laughs> and he would like roll up, struggle on the floor like a turtle or something. But, um, yeah. But apart from yeah. that, you've got all those crazy scenes with the asylum. You've got the drunk guy who runs the asylum. Uh, you know, Cushing's, the entrance of Cushing has never been better. Uh -oh. You know, oh. it's, uh, you know, that, that, like when he's just like, what's going on here? And the fact that he's one of the inmates, but he gets to call the shots is so cool, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. and then you've got his whole lab going on downstairs and Shane, Shane Bryant and, uh, Madeline Smith's little romance and her being, uh, her being mute because of some abuse she received from her father, who turns out to be the guy who actually leads the asylum. Oh, just amazing. <laughs> oh, that scene, that scene always unsettled me as a kid. Yeah. When Peter Cushing walks into the room and he's like, what are you doing with her in here? And it's just, yeah. it, it's, a, it's a movie that is very unsettling. I would agree. I think it's very underrated in terms of yeah. like, what? Very fitting swan song, I think, you know? Yeah, the so sets, I mean, yeah. So much of what he loved. The monster does look like he would probably, you know, chase around the Ritz brothers or something in yeah. a haunted house. But he, uh, he, besides that, I mean, you know, it's it's the the atmosphere of that asylum. Oh yeah. Oh, and that sad guy playing his violin as well, and then and, 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 and yeah. kills himself allegedly. Uh, you know, just so they can use his hands. Um, and he's dug up for, as his body's being carried to the cemetery, falls out, and he's not got his hands on there. So much good stuff in that movie. But I can imagine at the time it looked, it seemed extremely dated. You know, it was another Frankenstein movie in 1973. That was the year that The Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre were out. Rosemary's Baby and Night of the Living Dead had already happened. So you know, it's it's like old fashioned at this point. But uh, now that you look back on it among the Hammer films, I think it's a pretty good swan song. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, if you guys can't tell, we uh, we have a lot of love and excitement for Terrence Fisher. So hopefully yep. if you're listening to this and you haven't, you know, gone through uh, a lot of them, please do. You'll, uh, it'll be very rewarding. Um, and that brings us to, uh, you know, what we've been talking about a bit, but this box set. That is yeah. coming out soon, as you said, shipping this week for people who order direct, which, you know, always, always do it direct if you can, friends, straight, yep, straight into perks. <laughs> the pockets of those doing this work. Yeah. <laughs> but so, uh, OK, so how did this box set come about? Where did we um, how did the box set come about? It's a good question. I think we got two or three of the movies locked in. And mm -hmm. at that point, it was like, why well, is there any more we can get? I mean, it's Christopher Lee, for God's sake. He made <laughs> hundreds of movies. We've got to be able to find. But then we narrowed it down to like this, that his European stuff. 
in the 60s. So I think initially we got Castle Living Dead. We found the negative of Castle Living Dead, which is another example of a film that's been out and readily available for, for decades, but looked like rubbish. Mm-hmm. And so when we found the original negative, we initially transferred a version of a, uh, a low con print. Uh, well, it was some, it was some kind of protection print that was at the British film Institute mm-hmm. and it looked fantastic. But then when we got the element, it was the cut version. It was missing something like four minutes and George Reese at DVD drive-in helped us with that. who is a very good historian of, of movies of this era. And so he looked at it. He was like, sorry to say, this is the same version that's been out on DVD and it's missing like four or five minutes. Uh, so with some help from a colleague in Italy, Jacopo Pica, we were able to find the original negative and get that scanned. And it looks phenomenal. Yeah. And yeah. And so this, uh, this was the first feature produced by Paul Maslansky, who went on to produce a ton of amazing movies, but is most famous as the creator of Police Academy. Uh, you know and so he and he's an absolutely lovely guy he's in the he's he's gives us a full career interview in the extras it's uh the first role of donald sutherland as well he plays two two roles in the film oh i didn't realize it was first yeah and so he was found uh uh i think in a joe orton play maybe i might be remembering that wrong but they but they saw him in a play in london um uh, paul maslansky and his producing partner Saw him in London and said, "Hey, do you fancy coming to to Rome to be in a movie?" And I was like, "Sure, if you play my flight, I'm in." You know, and uh, so so that was the first one that we got. And then I was offered this weird TV show from uh, which was shot in Poland. It was an anthology show called Theatre Macabre. Well, it was retitled Theatre Macabre for airing in the U.S. And I'm not sure that it ever did air in the U.S. But they got. Christopher Lee to do all the intros. So he did kind of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents thing where he basically, you know, does kind of a, a, a blackly humorous uh, intro to all of these episodes of stories by Poe, Oscar Wilde, Ambrose Bierce. Um, so we've got two discs of that, 24 episodes of that. Uh, and then I- Mind-blowing, honestly, that you have that. I think that's yeah, probably that's, the thing that's like, what in the hell? Well, exactly. And it's, 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 uh, it's when the guy offered it to me, I'm like, I'd never even heard of this. Oh, you know? right, yeah. I've been reading, you know, horror books since I, since I could read and I've, I've never come across this. And that's because it never actually aired anywhere outside of Poland, as far as I'm aware. Um, so, so anyway, so we got the negative of that and transferred that here. And then next, I believe off MGM, we got Crypt of the Vampire, which is, um, uh, which is another one that has been sorely neglected over the years and, and another Italian production, another Italian Gothic that looks phenomenal. Um, then we got Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism, which was just restored in Germany from the negative. And, uh, and so we were able to license that from the company that restored it. So that we'd actually already had that in our hemisphere horror set just as a bonus because um, it's public domain. Mm-hmm. So we're basically doing what, you know, I'm criticizing other people of doing, but basically <laughs> we got it. We, we, we were like, you know, there's not, we, we got a film print of it. It was a 16 millimeter film print of it. It's like, well, this will be at least better than what's oh, yeah. out there, but it was very faded. And this was a very lurid, colorful looking movie. And as luck would have it, the guys who actually restored it got in touch and were like, you know, we've, we've restored this movie. Do you want to put it out properly? And, and so that, that was that. And then we also got this very odd film called Catharsis or Challenge the Devil, 
which was another Italian production where Christopher Lee is the creepy Christopher <laughs> Lee character. Um, and this was the one and only film made by its director who, who died not long after, uh, a couple of years after the movie was made. And it's fucking strange. <laughs> so, yes. and, and, and as far as I know, it's never had an English language friendly home video release. It certainly oh, hasn't had yeah. one that looks good. So again, that's another one that's kind of pulled out of, uh, of, of obscurity for, for, for us in the US at the very least. And, uh, and then, of course, Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace was, was another one. So, so we were able to track down the German company that, that owned that. We had erroneously for years been trying to get it off an Italian company who uh, were representing it. But, oh, they didn't have elements. Oh, the producer doesn't want to sell it. And, uh, I'm like, the producer? How, how old is he? Like 400 at this time? Um, and and uh, uh, anyway, then, it, then, you know, just a little bit of extra digging and we found out the original German production company and sure enough, they had the original elements and it was available. So, so we did that. And then in addition, we've got a whole disc of, of what, we, what we've called Relics from the Crypt, which is, includes that uh, horror documentary from... Uh, that horror documentary from Switzerland. It has an interview with Tony Dalton, who's written the book on Terence Fisher, which is coming out from Fab Press next month. And we're also making it available on our website. Um, and uh, what else is on there? Lots of interviews with Christopher Lee over the years. As, as I mentioned, we've got them from all over the place. We've got you know, one, from, one from Belgium, one from Australia, from, one from Ireland, from all different eras. We have an interview with Alan Frank, who wrote some of the formative horror books of the 70s he wrote four of those books which you know people of my age grew up staring at the pictures to, to <laughs> because that was the only way we could see anything of these movies until they showed up on tv uh you know lots of st hours of stuff like that and then there's commentaries like kim newman uh has done a commentary on the sherlock holmes film and uh you know no no end of stuff on there man uh thank you for what you do the shit is incredible <laughs> yeah uh, pleasure not I, just, I, I remember like when you because i had been you know very excited for milligan of course and i'm i'm on my second go through of everything in there again because i can't i just still can't believe that it exists at all <laughs> like, you know you, you know i mean anyone who's yeah. been a milligan fan for any amount of time just the fact that we're at this point that i can hold <laughs> like a beautiful <laughs> lovingly restored insanely researched like you know that shit is nuts and then you also announced this box set <laughs> just, yeah and, and that's not it. We have we have at least two more box sets coming before the end of the year, which Ugh. are uh, are ridiculous undertakings, as ridiculous as the Andy Milligan and and, and Al Adamson's in some ways. Uh, but you know, it's because well, they need doing. Like nobody else has done this, <laughs> so it's like, why wouldn't you do this if you're going to dive in? You may as well dive in the whole way. Like yeah. you know, as long as, as long as we can get the films, as long as we can get the elements. Then, then we're going to go the whole way. Amazing. Who else is going the whole way for Nosferatu in Venice? You know, <laughs> you, know that, you see, the, something like Nosferatu in Venice, and there are other examples of this, where, where, where my uh, background in doing, you know, the extras and my passion for making them interesting is, uh, is comes in because 
once they started talking to like Luigi Cozzi about the making of Nosferatu in Venice, it's like, oh, this is a story in itself. This is a story that's actually way more interesting than the movie itself. <laughs> so as a result, we have a feature length documentary on the final years of Kinski, which Josh Johnson directed, where we have all these insane stories like everybody knows that klaus kinski was mad right but <laughs> when you actually collect all these stories together from that last gasp of his career where he really had utter contempt for anyone he was working with it's just amazing that that people actually got these films finished uh, and and nosferatu and venice is an example yeah you it does you, once you see that you're like ah that's why it's so stunningly lyrical and beautiful in parts but then really hokey and getting from a to b and like finishing the story you know and that's why because you know when you have a troubled production it's like fuck we just need enough in the can to make a movie you know yeah. we spent some we've run out of money we just got to deliver a movie we got to find a fifth director now exactly <laughs> exactly so oh, god i also wanted to uh shout out because as i was preparing for this today you of course did your august annou announcements yes. and you like you know i've been a fan since day one when you guys started um you know back when i was living in denver and buying up all your shit there uh and you've always, you know, you've been consistently doing amazing shit, but I got to say this year is killing me in the best way. And the fact that you today announced the Aloy de la Iglesia stuff, yes. I, I can't fucking believe, never in my wildest dreams. Yeah. Never. Like, thank you. <laughs> I yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, oh. it's, it's actually Kayla Janice, who's, who came yeah. on board as a, as uh, editing the extras originally, and then became a producer of extras. She's extremely good at it. And mm -hmm. she you know, goes out of her way to find people who are the right people to, to comment on this. There's a little too much of, of like random people doing commentaries on, on discs from, uh, from, you know, from, uh, I, I, whatever. I don't want to get specific about that, <laughs> but, but basically, yeah, but basically she goes out of her way to make sure the right people are, are talking. Are, are talking about these subjects and initially we just got cannibal man because it's a video nasty and uh and and you know carl and i's upbringing was around the reason why we're so passionate about doing this is probably because it was taken away from us when we were so <laughs> just discovering it it was like wait you can't take those we want we still haven't seen them you know and so cannibal man is an example of that and also a film where i'd seen this poster in one of those uh, uh, early 80s horror books, I think it was the Encyclopedia of Horror, and it had this artwork with the cleaver in the face. I'm like, what is this movie? You know, it's like, I can't, it's, I can't, you know, that's not going to show up on the BBC. Um, so that artwork had never been, as far as I'm aware, never been used as key art. So first and foremost, I'm like, that is, is our cover. We're using that for the and then I asked Taylor to start looking into the extras and she was the one who told me about No One Heard the Scream, his giallo. And so it was a, available from a license or we licensed from a lot of the time. And then she went even deeper and found out about these kinky films, which I've never heard of any of them. And basically the kinky film was like the juvenile delinquent films of the era. So in Britain, they had scum in Germany, they had Christian F. Here we had the Warriors and Over the Edge and stuff like that. Well, in Spain, they were they were making these, and it's the post-Franco era, Generalissimo Franco, not just Franco, uh, where where obviously there was this new freedom 
in 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 the art, well, New Freedom in general, but certainly in in cinema and the arts. And so this is a movie about these guys starring the actual people, the actual kids who were essentially juvenile delinquents and, oh. and heroin addicts and thieves and and all those kinds of things. So these movies are are really really eye opening stuff. Uh, and then wait. of course, and then of course, we announced Overboard at the same time. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I loved watching, uh, watching uh, the the arguments re resurface again on the internet. Today. Yeah, exactly. Is this a <laughs> fucking joke? Yep. How oh, dare they? <laughs> There's always that one guy too who was like, "Actually, guys, trust me. I know someone that works there. It is a joke. This isn't happening." Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're really fucking with you. They're actually taking your money to not deliver anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Well, yeah. You. Um, for everyone listening, Severn is, you know, the back catalog is incredible. Um, but yeah, you guys are just on a fucking roll. Um, you know, Born for Hell coming, Siege coming. I could just list them all. There's just too much that I'm very excited about. Yes. Uh, and our, our mid-year sale is next month, which is always a very yeah. exciting weekend. And we have, I think, nine uh, new releases coming out in, at, at the sale. I, I've lost track. But, um, <laughs> but, but one of them is, is such a special movie. For me, it's like we actually have two of the films that for years I have been uh, hoping to do a Severin edition of. And this is one of them. And the other one will be coming out in September. Uh, yeah. So I can't say what it is yet because we haven't revealed. But believe me, it's one of one of the greatest horror movies ever made, uh, in, my, in my opinion. <laughs> so I'll take that with a great <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Uh Will you tell um, us? Will you tell us once we hit stop on record? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we do it. Like as we as we wrap up, uh, I just want to remind everyone: it's changing a lot in the world of home video, which is great. But I think a lot of people who you know buy movies to watch at home think about these companies very often as literally just like, yeah, they put out movies, whatever. Just want to you know elevate celebrate that you guys are archivists and that you are historians and that you are you know saving these films truly from you know from bootleg hell or from you know horrific releases from certain companies that do not give a shit and don't do it right you know so all hail you and kayla everyone at the team you know thank you uh thank thanks you. for thanks for doing what you do it's <laughs> our pleasure thank you yeah. yeah, when we're all shoring up Blu-rays at the end of uh, when life becomes Ready Player One, you know, it's they're gonna be. You've got to keep your Blu-rays, man. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yep. Absolute pleasure to talk with you. Yeah. Thank Great you very time. much, guys. It's been a pleasure right. to be here. Oh, uh, thanks for joining us, and we uh, will look forward to our uh, box sets coming soon. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we're we're hitting. I'm hitting stop on the recording, but I just want to know what this movie is. It will, I'll never tell. I won't tell a soul. It still says recording in the.